so you know, I'm uh, leaving for vacation next Sunday, or uh, tomorrow morning, actually, and uh, Pastor Paul will be uh, conducting the services uh, beginning August 11, and a great series is, is coming up, What's In It For Me? And uh, you won't want to miss this. Uh, it'll be a great precursor to our uh, new startup series in September, so uh, please invite your friends and enjoy uh, Pastor Paul. Well, today I want to uh, wrap up this whole uh, series that we've begun, so I want to remind you that your message notes are in your program. You can also just listen in, look at the screen, they'll be there for you. And you can also access your notes on version, the Bible app. Just go to uh, More Events, and uh, Circle Drive will come up. You can add to those notes. You can save them, and, of course, you can share them. I want to welcome those who are listening online. And thank you to all who are visiting here today. We're just delighted that you're with us for this uh, service. As I said, we're wrapping up the series called Perspectives and reminding us that something of what perhaps most of us have experienced, life rarely goes as planned. You know that, right? Life rarely goes as planned. And plans are good. Like, I'm not against planning. I love planning. You get more done if you do. Uh, God talks a lot about planning. In fact, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about planning. But life rarely goes as planned. Reality is greater than our plans. Have you experienced that? Reality is greater than our plans. Reality trumps and wins. Because uh, sometimes, because of the decisions you make, or because somebody else makes a decision that affects your life. And so reality trumps our plans. At the end of the day, it means that some of our dreams will not come true. And that's a hard pill to swallow for many of us. It means that some of you may not live happily ever after, you may not walk your daughter down the aisle. You may never need to purchase a high chair. Your second marriage begins to feel a lot like the first one. That prodigal kid may not come home. He or she may marry the person anyways. The dream job is really not the dream after all. The money will always be tight. So that's a depressing way to start, isn't it? Reality trumps plans. And so for many of us, because of that, we have this inner sense of panic. Or for some of you, an inner sense of anger. Or if you don't like expressing anger, maybe it's just an overwhelming sense of depression. Maybe you felt God promised you, or maybe you feel he owes you 
because you played by all the rules. You played by the rules, so God owes you. You waited. You did what was right. You took the high road. You sowed so you should be able to reap. You did everything you know to be right, and it looks like your dreams are not coming true. And so what do we do when the dream doesn't come true? Today I want to look at David's, King David's perspective because this was his experience towards the end of his life. Over the last weeks, we've been looking at King David and his perspectives on life. And if you'd like to catch up on some of the sermons, you can go to cdac.ca slash messages and you will find them there. Now, we looked at David in his 20s when King Saul was hunting him down. It looked like his dream of king, becoming king would not materialize. David was running for his life. And he was at this sense of panic inside of him. And he made bad decision after bad decision as he was trying to run away from King Saul. And in the end, because of a bad decision I think that he made, he took matters into his own hands and he learned a valuable lesson that would serve him as he became king. In the end, people died because he made a decision. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, 22 years after he became king, he's now in his 50s. He's 50 years old. He's no longer the macho kid that killed, king, or killed Goliath. And if you're in your 50s here today, uh, that's the new 30, all right? You're young. But in David's time, that was old. You were no longer young and handsome. You lost most, most of your teeth and you smelled bad. And he's not the cool king anymore. He's, he's David, he's aging. He would send his, his army off to war and he would stay within the palace because he was too old to fight. He gets up one night. He walks onto the, the balcony of his palace and he's looking over the city of Jerusalem and his eye caught a very beautiful naked woman. The mistake he made was he asked one of his servants, who was that woman? And the servant said, well, that's one of your army general's wife. I mean, that's Bathsheba. David said, bring her to my palace. So remember, God warned Israel not to have a king. God had set up laws and judges to administer so that there would be order. There was a reason why God had that uh, system in place. But the people wanted a king. And so finally, they got a king. And the problem with the king is you can never say no to the king. You can tell a priest no. You can tell a prophet no. You can tell a judge no. But you could not tell the king no. So the servant 
brings Bathsheba to David, and they spend a night or two together. She goes back home, and a while later she, she says, you know, I took the test, and the thing turned color, and I'm pregnant. And David takes matters into his own hands. He sends for her husband Uriah under false pretense, and he says to Uriah, how's the battle going? Uriah says, going good. So uh, David says to him, okay, I'm glad to hear the report. Now go home, you know, spend some time with your wife. But Uriah is a righteous man. And so he sleeps by the palace gate. The next day, David asks, why did you not go home? Uriah is a man of integrity, and he says to David, he says, I can't participate in pleasure while my colleagues, my army, is out doing battle. They're out at war. So David said, well, stay with me today. And David got Uriah very drunk. At the end of the evening, he points him in the direction of home, and Uriah still does not go home. He, he sleeps at the gate again. Same reason. So David goes to plan B. He sends a letter to give to his commander, Joab. And it says, Dear Joab, put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle, and when things get hot, withdraw from him and his bodyguard. And basically it was a, a sentence of death for Uriah. David signs it. He seals it. Gives it to Uriah and says, give it to your commanding officer. He delivers his own fate. Now, when Uriah dies in the battle, Bathsheba mourns the loss of her husband. And then David marries Bathsheba to look like he's a wonderful man who raises somebody else's child. And on the surface, it looked okay but in a world where there were slaves everywhere, the walls talk. And so, eventually, the prophet Nathan gets a hold of the information, and he pays David a visit. And the upshot is that he confronts David about this adultery and murder, and it breaks David's heart because he allows, here's the thing about David, he allows the law of God to break him. Now, here's the problem. And this is probably what many of you experience. Every sin and every decision comes with a prepackaged consequence. Comes with a prepackaged consequence. So you make a decision. It could be something that dishonors God or not, but it comes with prepackaged consequences. There are results of every decision. And even though David was sorry for his, his, his sin, for breaking God's law, it did not absolve him of the consequences of the decisions he made. David was sorry for what he had done. If you, 
if you go to Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is a psalm of confession. The end of, of his time with Bathsheba and his expression of sorrow to God, he writes Psalm 51 to describe what he was feeling. So as David mourned his sin, Nathan told him this in 2 Samuel 12, verse, beginning at verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, and here's the consequence, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And Nathan was basically saying to David, you did this in secret, but the results of your decision will be made very public in broad daylight for everyone to see. So David was broken, and he writes Psalm 51. And Nathan said, God will forgive your sin, but you will experience the consequences of your decisions. You tried to lie to the entire nation. Well, nothing happened for 10 years. 10 years, there was no change, no consequence. But after 10 years, it would turn David's world upside down. The first thing that happened was his son Amnon was uh, in line for the throne. He was consumed by lust for his, his half-sister, Tamar. Now, the, Tamar had uh, the same father but different mothers. And so David's older son, Amnon, is lusting after uh, his half-sister. Now, Tamar, at first, ignores him, but he just he cannot get this woman out of his mind. So what he does was he, he fakes getting sick and, and he asks his father David if Tamar could come to his bedroom and he could prepare a, a special meal for him. He was trying to deceive his father. Well, she comes in and Amnon begs her to come to bed with him and she refuses and finally she pleads, please don't do this. Instead, Amnon rapes Tamar, rapes her. And after the, the rape, it says that Amnon hated Tamar as intensely as he lusted for her. He just used her and tossed her aside, kicks her out of bed, tells her to get out. And she is devastated. I mean, she is ruined. In that culture, you were not a virgin, then, you know, she would never marry, especially since she was raped. And again, there are no secrets in the palace. David finds out what happens. And you know what David did? He did absolutely nothing. He did nothing. He refused to get involved. David lost his moral authority after he had done what was bad or worse with Bathsheba and Uriah 
So he doesn't feel he has the moral authority to do anything, so he does nothing. Next, we're introduced to another son. This son's name is Absalom. He is the, the third son in line for the throne. There's Amnon, another son, and then there, there is Absalom. So Absalom is the full brother of Tamar, so he invites Tamar to come and live in his home. And Absalom does not even talk to his brother Amnon. He just, it's like Amnon is dead. He treats him that way. And when he thinks that everybody has forgotten about Amnon and Tamar, he throws a big party for the whole family, invites the whole boot, kittle and kaboot with them for this party. And of course, David says, sends his regrets. He says he cannot come. And Absalom gets everybody drunk. I mean, they're just having a great time. And when everybody is good and drunk around the table, Absalom sends his servants to get uh, Amnon into the party room and slaughter him. They slaughtered him right in front of his brothers. And this was shocking, and his brothers scattered all over Jerusalem and and. Absalom flees to the north to what is now uh, Syria. And when David finds out about the murder of his oldest son, David does absolutely nothing. Life goes on. After three years, David begins to miss his son Absalom. And he invites him back to Jerusalem. And he is told, you can come back home but your father, David, refuses to see you. I, I just, I don't know if this is some sort of dysfunctional relationship. But anyways, Amnon comes home. And David ignores him and ignores him and ignores him. And Absalom is getting angrier and angrier and angrier at his father. And Absalom sends his, his servants to go to Joab's farm. And Joab is the commander of the army for David. And Joab is the guy where all the messages come through. He's kind of his communication director. And, uh, you know, he's kind of the butts of the Trudeau government. He, he, he's giving him all the information, right? And so David sends uh, for, or rather Absalom sends for Joab and Joab won't have anything to do with Absalom. He won't interfere. He won't get involved. So Absalom, uh, finally, he burns down Joab's farm. Now he has his attention. And, and Joab comes to Absalom and says, what? what are you doing? Like, what's going on? Why did you burn down my farm? And Absalom said, look, I've been trying to get the attention of my father for two years. I've asked your help. You won't help me. So I took drastic measures. I burned down your farm. Would you talk to my father? And Joab is quite um, connected emotionally to David and what David would respond to. He knew that if Joab knew if he went to David and says, look, you've got to meet with with your son Absalom, 
David probably wouldn't do anything. So he knew that David had a weakness for women. And so he sends a woman to give the message to David. And this woman tells an emotionally engaging story about a person that David is most frustrated with in the story. And then the woman told him, the story is about you, David. It's about you. You're frustrated with yourself. So she tells David that Joab has sent her, and please see your son Absalom. He's waited for you for six years. Would you just be a father to him? So, sure enough, Absalom comes before the king. David lays his hands on him, which was a way of saying you're forgiven and restored. But it's not. Apparently, they never had the deep conversation about their feelings and, and what went on. And so Absalom is hurt, and David never calls him back. He ignores him again. So Absalom is so angry at his father he decides he's going to overthrow his father. And he's going to take the kingdom. After all, he reasons, it's going to be mine anyways, someday. So Absalom came up with an idea, and it's absolutely brilliant. He sat at the king's gate every day. So when the people came to bring a matter before King David, for a justice to, to find a ruling, they would meet Absalom. He was at the gate. And he would say, hey, let me help you. In essence, he set himself up as a judge to preside over cases that would take months to get before David. And people recognized that Absalom was so smart. He was so wise. He was a great leader. And the hearts began to warm towards Absalom. And he did this for four long years. The scriptures tell us that Absalom stole the hearts of the people and he set in motion a plan to overthrow his father. Now, we don't understand this in our day because we have social media, but in, back in that day, they didn't have newspapers, you know, the New York Times, nothing. The Jerusalem Gazette, it wasn't there. So Absalom had uh, what they called messengers that sent, were sent all over the primary cities and announced, Absalom is the king. So the people didn't know the backstory. They didn't know if, if David had abdicted the throne or whether he died. All they heard was, David is king. And they, or rather, Absalom is king. So Absalom was loved by this time. And so the news that Absalom is king was, was really good news to them. So 16 years, 16 years after the incident with Bathsheba, David's world is now upside down. It's upside down. His firstborn is murdered by his favorite son, who has now instigated civil war, and divided the whole nation. And David's messengers came and said, the people's hearts are with David. And in 2 Samuel 15, it says, verse 14, 
Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. So David was saying, if we stay here, Absalom will, will uh, slaughter innocent people. So we need to get out of Dodge. So the plan was to flee. And David abandons the throne, abandons the city. And now he's a fugitive again. He's a fugitive again. This time, he's not 22. He's 61 years old. And once again, our lives intersect with the story of David. Some of us are here this morning and our heart is broken. We're disappointed. We're angry. Some are frustrated with God. Maybe some of you are looking to blame and God is handy to blame. You have hung in there year after year after year. And now look what he has done or she has done. You waited, but for what? You raised him or her right, and you don't deserve to be treated this way? You were told if you were honest, God would look after you, and now you've lost the job. And on and on and on it goes. All of our disappointments and heartbreak. You know, the first time that David fled, he took matters into his own hands and created a mess. A mess. But this time he had learned from the seasons of life. They're crossing the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem down to the other side. And, and all the people are following David as he's leaving the throne and leaving Jerusalem. It says that Zadok the high priest was there and the people were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And this was important because it represented the presence of God. Wherever the ark was, they believed God was. For ancient Israel, this was true. And you could not be closer to God than you were to the ark of the covenant. It looked like the presence of God was moving away from Jerusalem along with David. But look at David's heart and his perspective. David thinks, this is kind of manipulative. So he said to Zadok, take the Ark of the Covenant back to the city. And for sure, I think David's people would not have liked this. What gave them confidence was that they were following the king and they were following the presence of God. And David was telling them to take the presence of God back to Jerusalem. And it was like saying, Absalom is right and we're wrong. But listen to what David says. This is so powerful. You see his, his heart and perspective. He says, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. And for punctuation, David says in verse 29, rather 26, but if he says, I'm not good, if I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. And I'm ready. And look, at I've underlined this in your notes. Let him do whatever seems good 
to him. And you see the submissiveness of David. He had learned from his past mistakes. He says, not my will. It's God's will. Every time I do it my way, I mess it up. David lost his world, but notice he did not lose his confidence in God. His world was upside down, but David's trust in God is rock solid. He chose not to abandon God, and he leaves the city, and he leaves the ark. Meanwhile, Absalom enters the city without a fight. The only way to be the non-disputed king is to put David to death. So Absalom sets up shop in the palace, and another character ends, enters the story. His name is Ahithophel who is probably Bathsheba's grandfather and a trusted advisor to David. Now, Ahithophel changes loyalty since Absalom is entering into the palace, and he shows up to welcome Absalom and assure him, I'm here to help you, my friend. His advice, he said, Absalom, do not let David rest. Get organized right away. Pursue your father immediately. They left in a hurry, so don't let him get organized. Go catch David now and kill him so the people who left with him will come back with you and you will be the king. That's Ahithophel's counsel. Another counselor is the name of Hushea who had actually left the city with David, but came back when David realized Ahithophel was still in the city. Hushiah was there to pretend to be a good advisor and frustrate, frustrate the plans of Ahithophel. So here's what Hushiah said. He said to Absalom, David and his men are fighters. He may be 61, but don't be fooled by his age. They are as fierce as wild bears robbed of their cubs. Even now, he may be hiding in one of those caves. Take your time, build a large army, and lead the army to overthrow your father, David. That's his advice. So Absalom thought, great advice. Now, Ahithophel, I give him some points, knew it was terrible advice. So if David had time, he knew David would organize and he would kick butt. So Ahithophel went home and hung himself because he knew what was coming. He'd rather die by his own hands than David's army. So meanwhile, David goes back to the city of Mahanium and knows that Absalom is coming. And David divides his armies into three groups. Each of those three groups of, uh, of the army had a different commander over every third. And he gave them explicit instructions that when they catch up to Absalom, he said, be gentle with Absalom, my son. Be gentle with him, this, this young man. 
I realize it's war, but would you spare my son's life? Everyone heard the command. Now here's what happened. David's generals insist that David not join the army. David, you're 61, all right? You're no use to the army. Stay in the wall. So he stays on the city wall. He waits. Now, the battle did not take place on the open plain that people were used to, that the soldiers were used to. It took place in the forests of Ephraim, which meant superior numbers meant very little. Experience and communication mattered more. So David was so wise. He was such a skilled warrior. And the text says that Israel's troops, under Absalom's leadership, were routed into the forest, and 20,000 of his troops were slaughtered that day. Eventually, Absalom was caught and held prisoner and Joab entered the room and butchered Absalom. And once Absalom was taken out of the army, immediately the fighting stopped, the people went home, and David is told that Absalom, his son, is dead, and David mourns the loss of his son. The son that he wouldn't meet with, and he wouldn't visit with, and he grieves so deeply that the soldiers are afraid to celebrate the victory. So Joab goes back into David's room and he said, David, what is wrong with you? Come on, wake up. You are mourning your son. So the men feel that they lost the war. It's like you wish the army was dead and your own son was alive. Get out there and celebrate the victory. So David goes out and it's kind of a hollow victory. I mean, he tries to put on a good face because he loved his son. He loved him, even though he was betrayed by him. Now, David returns to Jerusalem, but David's world would never be the same. David died nine years later at age 70, and all of the detail speaks to the authenticity of the text the, the writers of these stories left nothing out. They, they didn't whitewash it. They, they spell out all of the flaws and mistakes of David. But the thing I want you to see this morning is that with all of David's flaws and mistakes, he never lost confidence in God. His somewhat sad ending reminds us of something very important. And this may be counterintuitive to you, but it may make you mad because a lot of preachers tell you that this is true when I, I'm saying I don't think so. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer or smooth circumstances or happy ever end after endings. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer, smooth circumstances, or happy ever after endings. I have met too many believers who are so confused because they, they've done all the right things. They've had answered prayer. They, they've done 
whatever God wanted them to do, and still, still they're walking through great difficulty in their life. And they think there's something wrong with their faith. I'm here to say that your, your, the foundation of your faith is not in answered prayer or smooth circumstances or happy ever after endings. It's a mistake to wrap our confidence and our faith in God around dreams coming true or answered prayer. Unanswered prayer or unfulfilled dreams say nothing about the goodness or the presence or the faithfulness of God. And David would remind us that when we feel forsaken, we are mistaken. He would say that in the middle of the highs and lows, through the ups and downs, God is with us. The foundation of your faith is the promises of God. The promise of God that he will be with you in good and bad times. The promise of God is that he will see you through to the end. The promise of God is that when you're faithful with him, he will be faithful to you and there is eternal life. And for some of us, this is so difficult to understand and we lose perspective. And that's why at Circle, we encourage people to be mentored and if you don't have a mentor, stop at the info desk and say, look, I need a mentor. And that's why we want people in circle groups because others can see what we're blind to ourselves. And there are moments and seasons and times in our life when we need others to help us with our perspective because when our perspective is skewed and we make decisions, we go down unfortunate pathways that have ramifications and consequences that you do not want to live with for the rest of your life. Remember what David wrote in his journal as he reflected on his life. In Psalm 25, he said, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust, because my hope, Lord, is in you. Could we say that together? In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust because my hope, Lord, is in you. That's the first good run. Let's do it again. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust because my hope, Lord, is in you. In the middle of the nightmare, David said, let him, God, do to me whatever seems good to him. Because he knew that when God writes the story, the story is good. The story's right. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but you are seated around people who look good and have it together we smile and smell good. But if we come to the podium and we told our stories, there are stories of disappointment and broken promises and shattered dreams. Yet you are surrounded by people with extraordinary faith. 
They have confidence in God. They have not made the mistake of placing their confidence and their faith in, the, in God around expectations of how God should or will behave. Then you say, what's the point of trusting God? If it doesn't spare me from heartache, because there's a God who loves you. And at the end of the story, your story is not yet written. His plans for you are good and merciful and loving. And we know at the end of our stories, they're stories of victory and triumph. So in spite of what happens to us, let us resolve to say, not my will, but your will be done. I remember uh, being a rather young minister. My mind goes back that far. And I felt God was calling me to do something. And as, as faithful as I could do it, I did it. And what was surprising to me was People I had known from little turned on me, did not like what I was trying to accomplish, didn't like that I was reaching all kinds of people that were younger and, you know, weren't familiar with church and it was kind of distracting and, and they were turning on me. And, and I just, I remember looking at God and just saying, what's up with you, God? Like, What's wrong with you? You call me to do this. I do it. I do it with all my heart. I'm faithful to you. I'm loving to you. And I have all of these enemies and some of my former friends who I used to water ski with and boat with and party with, they're turning against me. I said, God, I'm so disillusioned. You know what I discovered? God said to me, if you're disillusioned, you began with an illusion. I began with an illusion. I began thinking that every believer wanted every non-believer to come to Christ. And you know what I discovered? That's not true. It's not true. We can be as selfish as anybody else. We want it our way. We want to do it our way. You know, What's his name that sing, I'll do it my way? Frank Sinatra. I mean, that should be a great anthem of the church. I'll do it my way. Feed me, do it my way, do it my way, do my way. And I learned that when you follow God, you will often blaze trails. And he doesn't shield us from crap but he promises to walk with us. Do you know what saved me? I had a group of friends that were pastors that helped me see life and helped me with perspective. And they walked with me through the valley of the shadow of what I thought was death and brought me to the other side and help me see that as long as I'm okay with God, 
It doesn't matter what happens around me. Friends, do you have do you have a support network? Do you have people that help you with your perspective? Do you feel all alone? You feel like God's against you and everything's going the wrong way. God's not protecting you. You've lost perspective. And perspective comes from confidence in God and a group of people around you who help you see what you cannot see. That's the value of mentoring and that's the value of circle group. Are you in one? Do you have them? Would you stand with me? I don't know if David ever felt it, but God said of him, he was a man after God's own heart. That's how much God thought him. And he still didn't shield him from the difficulties of life. Would you go from this place confident that you can place your trust in God? There will be people here this morning that are willing to talk with you and pray with you and answer questions. But go with the goodness of God. Remember next Sunday, we're taking a Sunday off. Enjoy it. We'll see you here August 11th. God bless.